All right. Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 9 is where we will be studying in God's Word together. And, you know, I say studying, but really it's where we'll be feeding. Because the Word of God is the bread that God gives to our souls so that our souls are strengthened. It's good for the soul to be strengthened. Foods can't strengthen the soul, but the Word of God is able to strengthen our souls. So let's feast upon the truth of God's Word here in Mark chapter 9. If you recall, last week we looked into chapter 8, the last part of chapter 8, where Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. The Jewish people had been anticipating, waiting, looking for their Messiah. Jesus had come. John the Baptist had identified him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus had gone throughout all the villages of Galilee, traveled to Jerusalem, had performed many signs indicating who he was, the expected one, the coming one. The eyes of the blind were opened. The ears of the deaf were hearing. And so, though most of the people of Israel were blind to the truth of who Jesus Christ was, which was so clearly demonstrated before their eyes, yet a few, the disciples, recognized the person of Jesus Christ, that he was, in fact, the one that they had been waiting for. And that confession by Peter on behalf of all 12 of Jesus' disciples is an important confession, and yet we find that immediately after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus then had to inform his disciples what that meant. The disciples of Jesus did not understand what the Christ had come to do, what his mission really entailed. They had some ideas of the kingdom and the glory, but they did not understand the suffering that had to precede the glory of God's Son. So, in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. That somewhat deflated the, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus. They were flummoxed by this new information. They didn't quite know what to make of it. Peter, in fact, was so shocked that he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But we find that Jesus, from this point on, from the middle of chapter 8, up till the end of Mark's Gospel, is going to be demonstrating, both in his teaching and then in the act, that the Christ must suffer before he is to be glorified. And that this also is the pathway for Christians. That to become a Christian means that you are signing up for a path of suffering like the Lord Jesus Christ. A path of service to God that the world will not understand or appreciate, and that through this suffering service to the world around us, we also will then be glorified in the resurrection, sharing in Christ's glory. Now, that brings us then to chapter 9. And chapter 9, the opening verses here that we're going to be looking at this morning, verses 1 through 13, are focused on an event in the life of three of Jesus' disciples, that was meant to bolster the core of the disciples of Jesus Christ to be able to maintain their hope and their faith in Jesus in light of all that they and Christ were going to suffer in the coming days. This is a great encouragement. As we focused on the suffering last week, this morning we're going to have a re-emphasis, a encouragement about the glory that is inevitable, the glory that will follow. So we start in chapter 9, verse 1 this morning. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud for us. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke they are the synoptic Gospels. They tell basically the same account with some variations in details about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all three of the synoptic Gospels have 
this promise that Jesus states here in chapter 9, verse 1, and immediately after this promise about not tasting death until they see the kingdom of God, it's followed in all three synoptics by the account of the transfiguration, which will be our focus this morning in the following paragraph. Now, chapter 9, verse 1 could have gone with the previous chapter, or it can go with chapter that it's in because it forms the bridge between what Jesus has just been talking about and the transfiguration. And so I want to read for us once again to put it in our minds, the closing teaching in chapter 8 that sets this up. You see there in verse 34, chapter 8 verse 34, Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? Suffering and shame, glory in the future. That's the pattern that is laid out here for. Now, having said that they have to be willing to suffer with him in the present time, he gives them the encouragement in chapter 9, verse 1, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus' statement here is meant to encourage the heart of the disciples in light of the suffering that he has just predicted and that they are going to see. And so, what exactly, the question arises, what exactly is the event that Jesus is talking about in chapter 9, verse 1? When is it that some of those who were standing with Jesus when he was saying these things, when did they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? That is a perplexing question. In fact, this is one of the most difficult statements of Jesus in the Gospels, and we have a variety of possible explanations. Let me go through some of the possibilities for what event Jesus was trying to pinpoint here with this promise. I'm trying to. What event did he have in mind? He doesn't try, he does. So, the first one is the transfiguration. As I said, Chapter 9, verse 1, this promise, is also in Matthew and Luke. And each one of them follow up this promise with the account of the transfiguration. Many Bible teachers, probably the majority of the church fathers and probably the majority position among those who teach God's word in faith and in truth, believe that what Jesus was talking about was the transfiguration. That in the transfiguration... Some of his disciples, namely Peter, James, and John, as we'll see in verse 2, were given this gift from God to see the manifestation of the kingdom of God with power in the glory of Jesus Christ. And so let's read the transfiguration passage here so you can see how this could be what Jesus is talking about, about seeing the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It says this, in the following verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And so as Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, as his clothing becomes radiant white, and we learn from the other Gospels that his face shines like the sun with a, a light that is coming from within, that the glory of Jesus Christ, which has been hidden and veiled in the human flesh that he came and partook of with us, 
that the glory of God is manifested on the mountaintop to Peter, James, and John. Not only is Jesus transfigured, but also Moses and Elijah come and hold discourse with him there on the mountain. And so, with Christ being glorified, and with Moses and Elijah being there with the disciples, this is a foretaste, this is a preview of the coming glory of God's kingdom when Christ returns in power. Now, the preview is not exactly the same thing as the event itself. So whether or not you think that this is a full fulfillment of Jesus' promise that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, well, it's at least closely connected and it's least a preview of what he was talking about in chapter 9, verse 1. There's definitely a strong connection between the promise in 9-1 and the transfiguration in verses 2 and following. But there are a couple of questions that still arise for those who want to be honest with the Scripture and do justice to what the Word of God says. Notice that Mark says it's after six days Jesus took with him these three, and led them up onto the high mountain. Now, six days is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where we have such a specific indicator of time in between the previous event and the next event. And so, because Mark and Matthew and Luke all give very precise date as to when this happened after he'd made the promise, that's also connecting these things closely together. However, there's still these two questions. And it has to do with the six days. If I said to my children, don't worry, we're going to get to Disneyland. You're not going to die before we get to Disneyland. Because they really want to go. Uh, they, I don't know. You guys don't really want to go to Disneyland. But anyway, you, it works. And then next week, I take them to Disneyland. What's well, kind of a strange way for me to tell them that something is going to happen, they're not going to miss out on it, to say, well, before you die, we're going to do it, and then next week we're doing it. It, it just doesn't quite fit as well as one would expect. It seems like a strange way to make a promise and then fulfill that promise. And then secondly, the question is, is does seeing this preview of the kingdom count as seeing the kingdom of God after it has come with power? Some people will say yes, some people will say no, and so there are other views besides the main one, the, the one that seems most obvious, as to what exactly Jesus was referring to in chapter 9, verse 1. One view that is common among some Bible teachers is that Jesus is talking about the establishment of the kingdom of God through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ that here we're probably less than a year away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and his return to glory. And for those who are not dispensational theologians like myself, who identify the kingdom of God as already being inaugurated in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, well then it makes more sense to think, well, that when they saw Christ at the right hand of God, like Stephen saw the ascended, exalted Christ, he was seeing the kingdom of God with Christ sitting on the throne in heaven at the Father's right hand after it had come in power. Romans chapter 1 says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, I don't believe that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so this view doesn't seem very appealing to me as a dispensational theologian, but for those who are more reformed in their eschatology and have a more of a kingdom now theology, well, this is a position that is appealing to some of those covenant theologians, and I'm not going to go into all the issues between dispensational and covenant and futurist and preterist and, and all of those different interpretations of the kingdom of God, We've done that on another occasion, and I'd be happy to talk with you if you have questions about that. But I just wanted to make it clear that this is one possible interpretation according to a different theological position than what I teach. Maybe I'm wrong. Number three is very similar, that it's referring to the kingdom of God in the church. 
not so much the exaltation and the enthronement of Christ in heaven, but that the church is the kingdom of God, and that through Pentecost and the receiving of the Holy Spirit and the growth of the church, that the kingdom of God has been established with power in this manner, and that these men lived to see that in the first century. Now, the problem with positions two and three is that they're still not making the best sense of the time period. Jesus says there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. But all of them, except for Judas, lived to see the resurrection and ascension. And all of them, except for Judas, lived to see Pentecost and the growth of the church. And so to say some for an event that was just a year away doesn't also seem to do full justice to the time scale that you would get the impression from Jesus' words. Now, Maybe Jesus was being ambiguous in the time scale for his own reasons, and you know, maybe that's not a derailing of these that could still be the right interpretations. But there are other views that tend to make more sense of the time scale that Jesus is seemingly referring to in chapter 9, verse 1. So let's look at the fourth view. The destruction of Jerusalem began with the siege of Jerusalem in 66 AD, and it culminated in the destruction of the temple, the burning of the city, by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem is held by, again, some non-dispensational covenant theologians to be a fulfillment, perhaps, maybe a partial fulfillment or an initial fulfillment, some kind of fulfillment of this promise of the coming of the kingdom of God with power. Because some Christians will say that when God allowed the Romans in his providence to destroy Jerusalem, that it was an act of Jesus' kingly authority, his exalted power, to bring judgment, as he had promised and predicted, upon his disobedient and unbelieving people. And so if you see the destruction of Jerusalem as an act of the kingdom of God coming with power in judgment... Well, perhaps this is what Jesus was referring to. Now, the time scale here fits better because the destruction of Jerusalem is almost 40 years after Jesus made this statement. And so 40 years is about the time period that you would think somebody would be saying, you know, some of you are still going to be alive when this happens. If I said today, there's some people here who are still going to be alive when the Constitution is done away with in America. Now, if it happened next week, that wouldn't seem like a very, you know, interesting proposition, but if it's 40 years from now, then that makes a little bit more sense of some of you are still going to be alive when this thing happens. So this position, number four, has the benefit of fitting the time scale better, but again, it's not a very dispensational view of the kingdom of God, and it's got its own problems as well. So let me talk about number five. The fifth possibility for chapter 9, verse 1 in Mark's gospel is that this is referring to John the Apostle, seeing the kingdom of God after it had come in power in the visions that he received while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. John lived to be the oldest of the apostles, and in his elderly years, when he was probably in his 80s or 90s, God gave him the book of Revelation to give to the church. And the way that the book of Revelation ends is with a vision of the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And John repeatedly emphasizes in the book of Revelation, this is what I saw. I saw it. And so that could be the fulfillment of some standing there, not tasting death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, none of these are perfectly satisfying explanations. Perhaps you will find the arguments for the transfiguration to be the most compelling. It's the position of the MacArthur Study Bible, the English Standard Study Bible. Many of the church fathers and many of the commentators that you would read hold that position. Not too many people I could find that were discussing this one, except for people online. I found just comments on message boards and Q&A forums and things like that where, where some people were just putting forth this idea of John's vision on Patmos. And, and you know what? I kind of like to go with the people sometimes. And, and so even though this is not an academic position I found in any of the commentaries, it's one that, that I think holds some merit and I kind of am partial to myself. 
whatever of these five things, or maybe there's even a sixth or seventh one that we don't know about yet, but whatever Jesus had in mind when he made the prediction in chapter 9, verse 1, it was meant to bolster the disciples about the inevitability of the coming of Christ's glorious kingdom and that they would see it, that they would see it. And that's still where we are today, that we need this encouragement that Christ is coming and that we are going to see the kingdom of God. And that's going to keep us going through the difficulties of being a Christian. So let's take a closer look then at verses 2 through 8 about the event itself here. Quite possibly the fulfillment of the prophecy in chapter 9, verse 1. And even if it's just a preview, it is a glorious preview, and it is strong encouragement for us to recognize the coming glory and to think about the coming glory of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Now, it mentions there that he he takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, these are the inner circle, they go up by themselves on a high mountain. Mark doesn't tell us which mountain it was that they went to. It's not of utmost importance that we know which mountain he went to, but because it's interesting and I like geography, let me point out that we had left Jesus here in Caesarea Philippi. That's where he was when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. He was in that region. And that the closest mountain that would be a likely candidate for an exceedingly high mountain in that area is here, Mount Hermon. And that would be a most likely spot for where the disciples went after six days to see Christ transfigured before them. Now, there's a traditional site that is further south that if you go to the Holy Land today, they might take you to Mount Tabor and say that this is the Mount of Transfiguration. However, it's quite a journey from Caesarea Philippi to Mount Tabor. If you're going to make that in six days, you're moving at a good pace. It's not impossible, but... It's a long ways to go in six days, and it doesn't seem to necessarily fit the flow of Jesus' movements as we have described here in the Gospels. And so that's why most people think we're talking about Mount Hermon. There's another mountain that's been put forward as a possibility. We don't know for sure. The point is, they're up on a high mountain. And many interesting things happen in the Bible on mountaintops. We read about one of them in our scripture reading today in Exodus chapter 24. And so, as he takes these three with him by himself up on top of the mountain, they have a time of prayer, and we're told in the other accounts that the disciples are sleepy, but then all of a sudden they're wide awake because they see that Christ has changed. They see that he has been transfigured before them. The word there for transfigure is the word we get the Greek into our English as metamorphosis. So it's a change in the appearance, a change in the form of the person. And so Jesus is changed with this radiant light coming from his clothing and from his face. His face shone like the sun, as it says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. And not only is Jesus transfigured, but also we have a miracle, an appearance suddenly of Elijah with Moses. Now, Moses lived and died 1,400 years before Jesus. Elijah, he lived and died a good 800 or more years before Jesus. And so to have Moses and Elijah there speaking with Jesus, you know, a rather mundane question that some people have asked is, well, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Did they have name tags on or, you know, what was it? And Elijah had a very distinctive dress and look that is described in the Old Testament. So I I think if you see a supernatural appearance of a person, you might be able to figure out which one Elijah was. But perhaps it was just from their conversation, or perhaps that Jesus spoke their names as he was talking to them for the benefit of the disciples. But but that's, like I said, a rather mundane consideration. Whatever the case, they know, they recognize this as Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And of course, the question that you would have as you're reading this is, what were they talking about? And we don't have to guess. Luke tells us that they were talking about what Jesus was going to do when he got to Jerusalem how he's going to die, how he's going to be buried, how he's going to be resurrected, how he's going to send to the Father. So they were talking about his exodus, his departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. 
And as they're talking there, imagine being Peter, James, or John. This was not expected. This is something you've never seen or experienced before in your life. And that's why Mark records, as he's writing down the memoirs of the Apostle Peter, that they were terrified. I don't want you to read too much into what Peter says when Peter says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because Peter says, I didn't know what I was saying. I was just uh, saying something because I felt like I should say something, but I had no idea what to say. And that's the way that Peter is. Peter is a leader. He always feels like it's his responsibility to to step up and and do something. He's an actor. He's uh, somebody who takes action. And so now he's here in a situation, and he's like, I have no idea how I'm supposed to act in this situation. And he just starts going on at the mouth. And then you get the message from God. This is an eyewitness account. This is not a myth. This happened in history. These men gave their lives for their eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they had seen this before Jesus died so that they would be able to maintain their faith and their following of the one that they knew was the Christ, but who was acting in a very non-Christ-like manner according to their imagination. They thought that the Christ was a conqueror. They thought that Christ was victorious. They thought that Christ was a king. And they didn't think that Christ was going to be crucified. And so God gives them this preview of Jesus' coming glory to sustain them through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and afterwards when they saw him raised from the dead. Not only were they eyewitnesses of his resurrection, but they were eyewitnesses of his transfiguration. Come with me to the book of 2 Peter. The last letter that Peter sends out before his martyrdom, he's encouraging the churches and he wants to re-emphasize to the people who have believed in Jesus Christ that this is not a made-up story. Notice what he says there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the word power. They're going to see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And here he says, I saw the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just his miracles, but notice what he's going to focus in on here. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We've seen the majesty, we've seen the glory of God's Christ. And you might think he's going to be talking then about the resurrection, but that's not what he does. Notice verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter, James, and John, just those three, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He says, we've got two pillars that we can stand on when it comes to assuring you that Jesus is the Son of God. One, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Not just the resurrection, not just the miracles, but the transfiguration on the mountain and the voice that we heard with our own ears from God identifying Jesus Christ as his Son. But that's not all we have. Not only do we have miracle after miracle, Not only do we have the resurrection, not only do we have the transfiguration, but he says we also have the prophetic word. You're going to see this in Jesus' talk here after the disciples are coming down. He's going to say several times, as it is written, as it is written. And so throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew prophets, we have prophecy after prophecy about the coming of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the glory of Christ, It's all there, and you can read it and know for certain. You've got something more certain even than an eyewitness record sealed with his own blood of the resurrection and transfiguration of Christ. You've got the prophetic scriptures. That's what our hope is based upon. Not a hearsay, not a hope so, not a wishful thinking or a myth, but on objective eyewitness testimony and objective prophecy. 
that we can prove. That is a great encouragement to us as God's children. And it gives us power to be able to endure suffering. So come back to Mark chapter 9 here. Peter says, it's good that we're here. Let's build some tents. We can stay here for a while. But then the cloud overshadows them and the cloud envelops them. And they hear the voice of God the Father coming out of the cloud saying, and so this is probably important, right? You've been up on the mountain. Jesus is transfigured. You've seen Moses and Elijah. You're completely overwhelmed and terrified. The cloud of God's glory envelops you on top of the mountain, and God speaks. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If God were to speak from the sky in thunder to us today, this is probably what he would say. Jesus Christ is my son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. That's the message of God the Father. That's what comes to our hearts. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words that he gave through his apostles. To read it, to study it, to meditate on it, to make it our beliefs line up with what he taught so that our lives are lived according to what he said, his promises, his testimonies, his example, his truth. We are here to listen to him. That's what we are here to do. The most important thing you can do is identify who Jesus Christ is and listen to him. I'd like you to think about what the Gospel of John says in its conclusion. As John records seven key miracles and the the teachings of Jesus Christ that goes along with each of those seven miracles, he, he comes to his conclusion. And he says, there's so many things that Jesus did that I could never write about them all, but these seven miracles, these are written so that you may believe. The purpose of this book is so that you would believe. Believe what? Well, you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. You would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, when God says, this is my beloved Son... And when John identifies Jesus as the Son of God, what does that mean? Aren't we all God's children? Well, in one sense, you could say that, but that's not what we mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the only Son of God. He's the unique Son of God. And what is contained in that idea? What is God communicating when he says, this is my beloved Son? Well, to help answer that question, turn with me to the Old Testament. Psalms, the book of Psalms in your Bibles, and the second Psalm in particular. The Son of God was synonymous to those who studied the Old Testament Scriptures with the Messiah, the Christ of God. And the Messiah, the Christ of God, was the one whom God had chosen out of all the people who would ever be born to be king over God's earth forever. Out of all the people that have ever existed, God in his choice, he elects, he's an electorate of one, he elects one person to be king forever. That's what the Son of God is. That's what the Messiah is. We see that here in Psalm 2. Look at what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You know what the word anointed translates to? Messiah, Christ. The Hebrew there is Messiah, translated into Greek. Anointed means Christ. But that's what the meaning of Jesus Christ is. He's God's anointed. And and what does anointed mean in the Bible? God anointed the king. Samuel went and anointed David to be king. Samuel went and anointed Saul to be king. And and David said, I'm not going to stretch out my hand against Saul, even though he's trying to kill me, because he's God's anointed, God's Christ. He's been christened by God to be king. And the kings of the earth take counsel against the Lord and against his Christ. And what do they say? This perverse generation 
this adulterous generation that Jesus described in Mark chapter 8, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want God's rule. The earth is ours. The nations belong to us. We are the rulers. We are against God. But, you see in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, you've got your little council of kings over here, great, you nations. As for me, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the Almighty, the All-Wise, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, Jerusalem, my holy hill. And so, we have then the voice of the Son of God speaking in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, what did Yahweh, the God, the everlasting God, the one who has chosen Israel, the one who has chosen Jerusalem, what does he say to his Christ? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God gives the rule of the earth to his son, the Messiah, the anointed one, to be king over all the nations. Now, that's what the Jews were expecting. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. You're God's anointed one. You're the one that God is going to give the rule over all the nations and you will trample them like pieces of pottery. Woo! It's going to be great. And Jesus says, no, uh, well, yes, but first, I'm going to die. And they're like, does not compute. You can't die and be king over the earth. Doesn't work that way. I'm going to be crucified, is what he eventually lets them in on. Instead of destroying the Romans, the Romans are going to destroy me. What? Have you read Psalm 2, Lord? You shall break them, they're not going to break you. This is the secret that they didn't understand. That the same Son of God that is being talked about in Psalm 2 is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They didn't make the connection. They didn't put it together. We'll get to Isaiah 53, hopefully. But let's finish Psalm 2. It says this. Here's God's counsel to all the nations of the earth, past, present, and future. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. This is the message of God to the White House today and to the presidents of every nation around the world, to those who are sitting in session at the United Nations. God says, be wise, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That is, bow at the feet of Jesus Christ and kiss his feet. That's God's counsel to every president in the world. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You either take refuge in him or you will be destroyed by him. That's not only true for kings, it's true for everyone. You will either bow at the feet of Jesus and recognize him as God's chosen ruler or you will be destroyed like the vessels of the potter with the rod of iron. Now, this message sounds pretty harsh. This is not the normal thing that people think about when they think about Jesus Christ today, which is exactly the opposite of the way it was for Peter and the apostles. We have a hard time with Psalm 2. They had a hard time with Isaiah 53. We love the idea of the suffering servant. Jesus, meek and mild, comes to die for us. Grace, love, rah, rah, rah. We're all on board with that, but we're not on board with Psalm 2. And they were just had the opposite problem. They were all ready for Psalm 2, and they had no idea what Isaiah 53 meant. They're both about the same person. Suffering and then glory. Love and grace... And then judgment and justice. You can't have one without the other. 
What is a kingdom of God like with no people in it because we're all sinners and we're all destroyed? That's not much of a kingdom. And what is a world full of grace and love where there's no justice, where there's no righteousness, where evil just continues on without God ever stepping in to stop it? That's not a kingdom of God either. There's got to be the suffering and there's got to be the justice. The grace and the truth coming together so that there's a redeemed people living in a kingdom of righteousness. That's the kingdom of God. That's the hope. That's what the Bible message is all about. And Jesus is encouraging his disciples here. You're going to live to see the kingdom of God. And they saw it in the transfiguration. They saw it in the vision in the island of Patmos. Perhaps even if you're not a dispensationalist, they saw it in the initiation of the kingdom in the church. But there was glory on the mountaintop. There was glory on the mountaintop. We can all agree on that. Now, as I said, when God identifies Jesus back in Mark chapter 9, he says, this is my beloved son. And then the command, he gives the information, this is what you've got to believe, Jesus is my son, the Messiah, the one that I've elected to be king. What you need to do is listen to him. It's exactly what Psalm 2 was, was saying in, in other words. But it's also very much in line with what Moses wrote about the one whom God was going to bring to teach the people the prophet like Moses. Now, I don't have time to go back and unfold all the wonders of Deuteronomy chapter 18, but write this down and go check it out. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, a key prophetic verse in Scripture about the coming of Jesus Christ, where God said through Moses, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. That's from the people of Israel, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Listen to the one whom God raises up to be prophet. And while God raised up many prophets and the people of Israel were accountable to listen to each one of them, there was never a prophet like the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who brought the new covenant. He is the one who is greater than Moses. He's the one that we need to listen to. Are you listening? What voice are you listening to? Who determines your beliefs? Who helps you to understand reality? Who guides you into knowing what is right and what is wrong for your marriage, for your family, for your own soul? Who are you listening to? Can you trust them? Are they reliable? How's it working for you? Everyone who has listened to Jesus Christ has experienced eternal life. To the degree that I have listened to Jesus Christ, I have experienced life. I've experienced joy. I've experienced hope. I've experienced peace that is supernatural, that goes beyond human nature. Listen to him and you will be blessed. Now, they have a conversation afterwards. Let's, uh, let's wrap this up here in verses 9 through 13. They've been on the mountaintop. They've been terrified. They've been overwhelmed. They've had an experience that they will never forget, and one that they're probably very eager to tell other people about. And as you would come to expect from reading Mark's Gospel, they're not allowed to tell anyone. All right, let's see what Jesus says. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until, there's a key word, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Let's stop there for a moment. This must have been a, a supernatural grace from God to give them the self-control to not talk about this. Can you imagine having this experience and not telling anyone about it? Hey, glad you guys are back. How'd it go? Good. <laughs> they kept the matter to themselves, but they were perplexed by what Jesus meant when he said that the Son of Man would have to rise from the dead. 
They'd heard Jesus say he was going to die, and that did not compute. And so they were not even near understanding what he meant when he said being raised from the dead. They knew that he said he was going to die, but they couldn't make sense of how he could be the Messiah and how he was going to die. And so they're far afield from even approaching an understanding of the coming resurrection of Christ. And it's not until after Christ is raised that they understand these things. And it's after Christ is raised that they're able to tell everyone what they saw. Not only in the resurrection, but also in the transfiguration. Now, there's a little bit of conversation also besides this, about Elijah that we have then in verses 11 through 13. And this is natural because they just saw Elijah up on the mountaintop and so they've got some questions because this was an important subject in Jewish eschatology, what they expected God was going to do as he brought in the kingdom of God. And so they ask him in verse 11, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? You're the Christ, but we were told that Elijah has to come first. You say the kingdom of God is right around the corner. We're going to live to see it. We just heard God identify you as his son, the Messiah. But what about Elijah? I mean, he was there. Does that qualify? He came and was there on the mountain. I don't know exactly what is motivating their question here, but it's a good opportunity for us to understand some things about prophecy. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So here's one place where the scribes were right. They had understood what Scripture had said concerning the coming of Elijah. He does come first to restore all things, just like God predicted in Malachi chapter 4. You can go back and read Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Read it in its context. Read the whole chapter and see how God predicted the coming of Elijah to restore all things. But Jesus adds in verse 12... How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So the Jewish mindset, their understanding of God's promises and prophecies were that, okay, we're waiting for Messiah. Elijah comes. Elijah identifies Messiah and gets us ready for Messiah. And then Messiah sets up the kingdom for Israel that lasts forever. That's what they thought was going to happen. And they had scriptural warrant for believing those things were going to happen. They just didn't understand that there were some other things that were going to happen there as well. And so Jesus throws this question at them. He answers their question by saying, yes, you're right insofar as you have it, but there's more that you don't yet understand. And he's trying to open up their minds to understanding by asking a question. He says, in your scheme, Elijah, Christ, kingdom... Where does the suffering fit in there? And they'd probably be thinking, well, what's suffering? Where is it written in the scriptures that the Son of Man, the Messiah, has to suffer and die and rise again? Where is that? Did you read that, James? Have you seen that? I don't know what he's talking about. It wasn't until after the resurrection that their minds were open to understand the scriptures and to be able to understand how God's timetable was more complex than what they had understood at that time. Now, I mentioned Isaiah 53, so let's take a look at that. Where is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Well, my favorite example of that is Isaiah chapter 53. So you go back to the Old Testament prophets. There are three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They're the major prophets because they wrote large books. And Isaiah is first among the prophets because he is the most important. The book of Isaiah is foundational to understanding the whole Bible. If you get a grip on Isaiah, then you understand God's plan. The Old Testament and the New Testament that comes together. It's the bridge between understanding Moses and understanding Jesus. Here, 700 years after Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law, 700 years before Jesus went up on the mountain and was transfigured, and was crucified on another mountain, right in the middle of that time period, God gives us the book of Isaiah that says, okay, here's everything I was doing through Moses and the law and Israel. Here's what I'm going to do with Christ. And then here's my plan for the eternal kingdom in the future. It's it's one book in the middle of the Bible that lays it all out, ties it all together. And the most important chapter in this perhaps most important book of the Old Testament, it's quoted I think second or third most out of any book in the Old Testament, 
the most important chapters right here in chapter 53. Now, sadly, whoever it was that decided where the chapter break should be missed it on Isaiah chapter 53. And really, it should have started with chapter 52, verse 13. Because there's a long poem here that has the stanzas. You can see all the structure in the Hebrew. And it starts in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and it goes to chapter 53, verse 12. And and I want to read it for you. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, who's the servant? Well, for that answer, you've got to study and read Isaiah chapters 40 through 52. I don't have time to walk you through Isaiah chapters 40 through 52 today, but all of my sermons on that are online at the website because we've actually preached through this whole book chapter by chapter and verse by verse because it's that important. The servant is somewhat of a mystery, but... For those who have eyes to see, we know that it is referring to Jesus Christ. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, like the Messiah, right? He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, speaking to the people of Israel, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So we've got the exaltation in verse 13, but then we've got this marring, this physical humiliation in verse 14. And this is how God is going to sprinkle, as it says in verse 15, many nations. The language of sprinkling people in the Bible is language of forgiveness, blood sacrifice. So the the servant is going to make atonement for the sins of many nations. And he's going to make God's will known to the kings of the earth. Like we had in Psalm 2 talking about the kings of the earth. Here the suffering servant is a message to the kings of the earth. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And then it goes to the next part of the poem. Each part of the poem is three verses. You can see the stanzas broken down in some of the English translations like we have here in the ESV. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, the suffering servant, the one who's going to be exalted, he grew up before him, before God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him. But the disciples saw his majesty on the mountain. The majesty that was veiled, the majesty that was hidden, it was revealed in the transfiguration. But the people of Israel did not see it. They saw no beauty in him that we should desire him. But instead... He, Jesus of Nazareth, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Very contrary to what the Jewish people expected from the Messiah. That's why they didn't identify this as the Messiah. But Jesus said, it was written that the Son of Man has to suffer many things. And the reason why the Son of Man had to suffer so many things is there in verses 4 through 6. Not only does the prophet tell us that he's going to suffer before he's exalted, but he tells us exactly why he is going to suffer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Speaking of the people of Israel, but they're an example to all of us as sinners. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who has chosen Jerusalem, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the law of Moses, God made provision for forgiveness of sins through a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. The life is in the blood, and it's on that account that a life is able to be given. The penalty for sin is death. You can pay that sin, or God can accept a sacrifice on your behalf. But as the scripture says, the blood of bulls and goats could never really take away sin. This was God teaching a principle showing us the pathway to forgiveness and the pathway to redemption that God was going to provide the Lamb. That in the blood of Jesus Christ, there could be forgiveness of sins. We have our iniquity laid on Him, and that's why Christ suffered. That's why He died. 
because of your lies, because of your disobedience, because of your covetousness, because of your envy. That's why Christ died. He was dying as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, bearing in himself the sins that we have committed. Without the suffering servant, there is no kingly glory. A king over an earth devoid of people because they're all in hell is not much of a kingdom. And God, wanting to redeem the earth, God, wanting to redeem us, first sent his son to make the way on the cross so that sinners can be reconciled to God, restored to God, and prepared for the kingdom and the glory that is to follow. But God is going to test you to see, do you believe? Are you willing to suffer with Jesus Christ now in order to be glorified with him then? Because salvation is by faith. And if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you believe that he died in the will of God and that God has raised him from the dead, if you believe that Jesus Christ is alive today and is at the right hand of God, and if you believe that he is coming back, then you will suffer anything with him and for him out of love, out of hope, out of expectation, out of joy. Not only love for God, but love for man. And our souls are redeemed by Jesus Christ. And it continues. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, the Jews who were alive when Jesus Christ suffered and died, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Even his own disciples didn't understand what was happening when Jesus died. He told them, but it didn't compute. Not only does the scripture here predict the sufferings of Christ, it tells us why Jesus Christ was going to suffer, and it tells us the response of the people. Prophecy on top of prophecy on top of prophecy. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. How is he going to be exalted? How is he going to be lifted up when he's in the grave? He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He died, and yet he's prolonging his days. How does that work? It's here. Show it to your Jewish friends. Show it to the secular humanist. Show it to the atheist and say, it's here. God told us Jesus was coming. He told us what he was going to do. He told us how he was going to die. He told us how the Jewish people were going to respond to that death. He told us why God was going to do all this, and he told us that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. It's in black and white on the paper for anyone who wants the truth. It's here. We have the prophetic word, more sure than the eyewitness testimony of godly men who gave their lives, saying, we saw Jesus Christ rise from the dead. Therefore, the poem ends in verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He died and yet God is rewarding him and exalting him. He was numbered with the transgressor, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. He's alive and he's making intercession for the transgressors today. The prophetic word is quite remarkable and that's just one of many passages in the Old Testament that Jesus opened the eyes of his disciples to understand after his resurrection. And so, come back to Mark chapter 9. We'll finish this quickly. He asked them the question, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? If you think Elijah, Messiah, kingdom, where's Isaiah 53 in that plan? He says in verse 13, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. It's written, it's written. Who is the Elijah who did come? Well, that was John the Baptist as the angel announced before his birth, 
he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And when they did to him whatever they pleased, well, that was King Herod and his wicked wife Herodias cutting off the head of John the Baptist with their capricious and arbitrary power. The kings of the earth putting to death God's messengers. The kings of the earth rejecting Jesus Christ and crucifying him. They're not listening to Psalm 2. They're not paying attention to Isaiah 53. God's arms are open wide. He is willing to forgive every single individual in the world today. All he asks you to do is repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the price. He just says, open up your hands and receive it.